Yes, people, it is part two of this week's Echo Chamber. And as promised, we've got a doozy for you, right? We are looking at the new documentary, Scala, right? And we are also speaking to the creative minds, the creative geniuses behind it. So, um, yo, I really hope you are, um, yeah, ready for an outstanding, outstanding episode. So buckle up, baby. This is a right, right, outstanding ride. Yo, so as mentioned, people, we have got Scala, right? New documentary. It's great. So let's take a look. Okay, people. So thanks to the BFI, just back from a screening of Scala, aka or the incredible strange rise and fall of the world's wildest cinema and how it influenced a mixed up generation of weirdos and misfits. I mean, that's a bit of a tongue fall, right? <laughs> it is written and directed by Ali Catterall and Jane Gills. It is produced by Alan Mark, Jim Reed, Andrew Stark. It's executive produced by Lisa Marie Russo. Line produced by Michelle Brand, Brand, Brondom. Uh, Barry Adamson handled the music. Sarah Appleton cinematography. Edward Mills and Andrew Stark handle editing duties. Luke Inset and Davy Jones were on arts. Uh, other sound is handled by Simon Capes, Michael Clayton, Clement Harper, Martin Pavy, Max Riches, Nikki Ruck, and Chris Watson. And we hear from a selection of people, and there's other kind of footage of these. So there's Barry Adamson, John Akumfra, Rick Baker, Ralph Brown, Paul Burston, and Adam Buxton, Caroline Katz, Bal Kruk, Helen DeWitt, Jane Gills, Liana Gupal, Mary Harron, Douglas Hart, Graham Humphreys, Stefan Jorzovon, Matt Johnson, Alan Jones, Davy Jones, Princess Julia, Isaac Julian, Ali Cayley, Nick Kent, Beban Cridron, David Lawson, Stuart Lee, Mike Leadham, David McGilvery, Mark Moore, Thurston Moore, Kim Newman, James O'Brien, Jane Pilling, Lisa Power, Paul Putner, Vic Roberts, Joanne Seller, Peter Strickland, J.G. Farewell, 
Kathy Unsworth, Mark Vallon, John Walters, Chris Watson, Ben Wheatley, Jar Wobbly, and Stephen Woolley. So the gist of this is, between 1978 and 1993, over a million people passed through the doors of the Scala Cinema for its daily changing program of double bills and all-nighters. From art to horror, via sexploitation, kung fu, and LGBTQ+. This film features new interviews with diverse audience members who went on to become filmmakers, musicians, writers, actors, activists, and artists. The interviews are combined with previously unseen archive material, iconic movie clips, animation, and graphics, plus a thrilling new score by celebrated musician Barry Adamson. With its universal themes of youthful discovery and the underdog versus the establishment, this is no nostalgia trip, but rather a film of universal relevance with clear parallels between then and now. Above all, it's hilarious, joyous celebration of cinema going. So, um, yes, it's all about the Scala. Now, I've been to the Scala a number of times, right? But in its music venue, guys, which it became in, uh, I think it's 99, right? I know I saw, um, who did I see there? I think I saw Tokyo Police Club, um, Scoobius Pip, and Dan Lasak, uh, and Narina Palu. So, um, yeah, and then just been to club nights and whatnot there. You know, it's a great friggin' venue. It was a great venue for music. You know what I mean? But, um, yeah, never a film. Never saw a film there, which must have been interesting. And so this is a, you know, it's kind of like a, a remembrance, but not a dour one. This is more like a... Uh, Jamaican wake, as it were, one of those New Orleans, you know, funerals, because everyone's just reminiscing about, you know, the times they had, how they found themselves there, which is, you know, super interesting, right? We start off with, an, like, some images, and as we pan back, right, it's on a screen in the venue, which I'm assuming is the Scala, right? They set it up, and so that's how we kind of start off in this. And then, yeah, we just hear from all of these people, you know, talking about the things they saw and everything like that, and how it just became, I guess someone described it as, a, a, like, similar to a biker club, right? That everyone just went and you had the regular people and you just had your friends there right and it was just accepting everyone and anyone it didn't matter didn't matter what you wore you know your race your gen none of those things people just turned up and watched films plus supposedly they were real lax on who they let in right who they let in, but I mean, uh, film ratings, right? 
if you were clearly not 18, didn't seem to matter, which, you know, <laughs> that can be a problem, right? That can be a problem. Um, now, I've worked in the cinema. I know what it's like. And I think you know what it was like when you were trying to sneak into films, right? When you weren't quite the age, you know? I kind of did, like, if you weren't, if you didn't look crazy young, right, and you came polite, yeah, you can bounce. You can get in, right? But if you came with an attitude, if you were rude, nah, you weren't coming in. And especially if you look stupid young. No, because they, yeah, that, that just gets you in mad trouble, right? So, yeah, it was just this kind of stuff, right? And supposedly they showed these weird kind of sex films and, and stuff, um, amongst other things, right? Which, um, yeah, that all seemed very interesting because, you know, I worked at, um, you know, the, the, the a, a large cinema and every now and again you would catch people having sex in the toilet but it sounds like here at the Scala that was more of a regular thing not even in the toilets right in the um in the uh corridors of things like that which oh man that that's just too funky, man. That's just too off key for me, right? Having to clean that shit up, boy, nah. <laughs> I, I, I don't fancy that. I wouldn't fancy that at all. But we just heard all the accounts, all the accounts. You know, everyone just seemed mad happy, right? You, you they, I think, um. Catero and Gills did a really good job of being able to capture just that love and enthusiasm all of these people and the reverence all of these people had for the Scala cinema. You know, I thought that was real evident. And so that was really nice. And just, you know, the, like they had people talking about how the building kind of talked to them. Like you could hear these noises and it was just like welcoming rather than like, yo, if I'm in this crazy old building, I'm hearing noises. I'm wondering what kind of menaces are up in this place. You know, everyone's just like, oh, the building talked to us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is like, yo, kind of crazy, but endearing, right? And, and I think it, it just helped you connect to, uh, you know, this historical retelling, as it were. So that was all great. And it was, there were some frustrating things here, right? Like, um, so we, as we get this intro into the film and we have people like recounting memories, then we go to a kind of visual history Right, so you saw some dates come up and pictures and things like that, but there's also a load of text. Yeah, could not see the text, right? And I'm just like, couldn't we have had someone narrate that? You know what I mean? Like, why not have people narrate that stuff? Because there was a lot of that, there was a lot of text. Also, 
some horrible color contrast with with the text and the backgrounds right that was yeah those things were frustrating and you know during the interviews there was music playing i don't think we needed the music playing during the interviews you know it, it's just a little bit of a distraction and i think what everyone's saying is so compelling let's let's just have that right let's just have that as a clear focus for anyone you know so that was a shame you know there, a lot of people um you know what i mean like i forget what it is it's like an adhd but it's, it's a focus thing right so music playing can really just mess you up so if you've got too many things too many stimuli as it were it's an issue right so yeah those kind of things it was a shame right those things were a shame but everything else about this really enjoyable is enjoyable kind of learning what this venue was right now knowing that i've had many a fun night there right in this newer guise but yeah what was it before so we get to learn about that you know and the other controversies like showing banned films which is insane right now i wish they had talked about how they even got the print because that's the big how the fuck did they get the print of the film right that that's something um so yeah no this is it's interesting man if you like learning about the history of things right maybe like me you've been there as a music venue and you've been like oh shit it was something because obviously when you see these old these music venues you know it's been a theater a lot of them were old theaters right so you you know and you wonder what was that like you know what i mean what what if these walls had ears no, it'd be if they had lips, right? Because you want them to tell you. I mean, they need ears so they can hear all the things and report, but they need lips as well. Otherwise, you know what I mean? They don't have hands. It's not like they can sign, right? So, um, yeah, anyway, you wonder what the history is. And so this gives you that, people. This gives you that. So if you have that interest, you know what I mean? If you're a cinephile, if you just like old culture, then Scala is most definitely for you. Now, it will be hitting cinemas on the 5th of January, right? And um, then there's a, a whole heap of dates with Q&As and all of that. So I've put all that information on the website, right? So, um, yeah. And then there's the, the film website itself. So, you know, all, you can check there for all future screenings and all of that information. But yes, people, Scala, you can learn the history in a cinema near you. And people, as mentioned, right, as mentioned, I'm now joined by the creative geniuses 
behind this, right? We have got Jane Giles and Ali Catterall, right? They co-wrote, co-directed this, and it's actually based on a book that Jane wrote, right? So, people, this this was great, right? Jane, we got Jane for an hour. She then had to go, fuck. Ali stuck around and we talked for another like 40, 45 minutes. Uh, this is so interesting, right? These two have been so immersed in film for so long, right? It, we just talk about everything. It's such a joy, such a joy. So people, I hope you love this as much as I love this conversation right actually having it in person so people as i say i give you ali catterall and jane child okay people so today i am joined by um we've got doom, doom, jane gills and ali catterall right is that did i pronounce that correctly well, you got Catterall correctly, but I'm Jane Giles, uh, Jane. not Giles, yeah. Giles, ah, damn it. It's, it's funny, it's, it's how the French pronounce it weirdly, they're Jane Gilles, whenever they interview it, Jane Gilles. <laughs> Whereas Ali name. usually gets, are you uh, Ali Catterall or Ali Catterall? <laughs> yeah. But well, well done on my one, that's the harder one, let's do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, <laughs> Ali and Jane are the writers and directors of Scala or The Incredible Strange Rise and Fall of the World's Wildest Cinema and how it influenced a mixed up generation of weirdos and misfits. We like, we like to pronounce that like Rum DMC when we're on stage. We're like, or oh, The Incredible. <laughs> go on, go on, Jane. <laughs> Straight. Rise. Rise and fall. Oh, we've, oh. we've, we've screwed it up already. <laughs> Sorry, we have screwed it up already. We can't. <laughs> Run DMC never did this. <laughs> it was a little bit smoother, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> now, this was a um, this was a fascinating, fascinating documentary. Uh, there's, you know. I've been to the Scala, but not in its first iteration as a cinema. Yeah. So learning that history was, you know, incredible. Like, now, I know this is based on your book from 2018, Jane. Um, mm -hmm. But what kind of, what was the interest to telling this story? you know, in the book form and then going to make the documentary. Yeah, no, good point. So when the Scala Cinema closed in 1993, um, I had kept a lot of artefacts from the office because we really thought we were going to try and reopen the cinema somewhere. So I kept all of the programmes and there were 178 of them, the monthly programmes from right. uh, 1978 to 93. Uh, they're the ones that you see in the film, the big kind of like fold out sheets that are really mm. amazing graphic design. And then one of the things that people, you know, um, remember most strongly about Scala was the 
programs. So we've kept those, we've kept like the box office returns book and the distribution like catalogs and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I had a very strong urge to write the book um, and based on programs as a sort of cultural history of London during those years, which pretty much the Thatcher years, the, the period of the Scarlet book ended by um, Thatcher's um, election to the government and, and then her being booted out of the party, although the Conservatives continued. Um, so the book got written. Ali is the editor of the book. And um, as the book was uh, kind of hitting the um, hit, hitting the, the newsstand, not the newsstands, but the bookshelves of uh, the crowdfunders who supported it and, and um, hitting the, the bookshelves with a great big thud, because the book is enormous. It's, it's about sort of this big. It weighs five kilos. It's an enormous oh overlarge. Uh, a, a great big thing. Um, we realised that there was something missing from the book, and that was the voice of the audience. Like the book is very much from the point of view of the management, and it's mm. quite sort of factually historical. Um, whereas uh, I knew by that point there was lots of archive footage that existed um, shot during those years at Scala, as well as all the fabulous movie clips, and ultimately. Um, the subject matter, that of cinema, it was irresistible to want to make a film of the Scala story, but doing something a bit different from the point of view of the audience. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, it does make sense, right, to make it a documentary, uh, you know, add that actual visual kind of, you know, piece to it all. Um, now, you both kind of worked in film, but this was your directorial debut. So thinking, okay, this needs to be something. This needs to be a visual story. But why then? Because I, I think we can do that. What was the thing that like had the confidence that you could turn this into, you know, your vision? Ali? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, to be honest, uh, we, we didn't have the confidence <laughs> initially. Um, we drew up a huge lot. And, and to be honest, even before it was a documentary, um, because we'd hooked up with Channel X, who make things like The Detectorists and Vic and Bob, Shooting Stars, Wurzel Gummidge, um, Home, sort of comedy dramas, really. Mm. Um, the first kind of feeling was that we should do a kind of sitcom a kind of real surreal, kind of like the young ones meet cinema, kind of very anarchic sitcom um, based on the Scala. And um, for whatever reason, we couldn't make that work, probably because we're not sitcom writers. And it's a hugely particular kind of discipline that most comedy writers even shy away from. It's a real hard thing to do. Mm. Um, so having sort of <laughs> crashed and burned, and I still think there were some good things in it, actually. Um, which I think we'd quite like to resurrect at some point in the future. But having mostly kind of not succeeded at making a successful kind of sitcom pilot, we just went, OK, let's go straight back to the drawing board and actually do a documentary, which at this point is probably, you know, over and above the right thing to do. Um, so we drew up a unicorn list of, um, of directors who... <laughs> 
just were impossibly busy. I mean, no one was going to go, yeah, 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 we'll direct it for you. But, you know, when you're kind of slightly inexperienced, you think, oh, just, well, we'll just ask them, you know. Mm. And sometimes that can happen. Sometimes if you have the kind of front to ask people, they go, yeah, all right. And, and that was our experience, certainly in getting the interviews. But in getting the directors, it was like, uh-uh, this, this is not going to happen. So I well remember one day sitting around, a, sitting around an office or a club and um and channel x going do you know what okay guys look you're not going to get a director um so we think we know the best person to direct this is probably not verbatim but it was around about that kind of thing and like (laughs) i always liken this to kind of donald sutherland at the end of invasion of the body snatchers pointing at jane like this you you (laughs) i think i'll let jane take over for what her reaction was uh, I, I did go to film school, but I never wanted to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be, um, w- well, I, what I was, which was a film programmer, an exhibitor mm. uh, and a distributor. Mostly, most of my career has been about film distribution. So I was always working with the finished pro- product, not actually generating something. So I didn't really want to direct the film, but the producers um, also at that point, including as well as Channel X, Andy Stark, who um, fantastic producer who works with Ben Wheatley, Peter Strickland, Prano Bailey Bond and a legend. Uh, uh, numerous others, a very experienced, very lovely guy. Um, and, and because they were all sort of pointing at me and cornered me like an animal, um, <laughs> what they actually said was, it's not rocket science. You can do it. You just buy experienced people um, and you don't pretend to know more than you do. So um, that's exactly what happened. We worked sort of piecemeal on the film. Um, the first, more or less the first year was spent developing it and raising the finance, most of which, two thirds of which came from the BFI Doc Society and one third of which came from a crowdfunder supported by over 300 people. Uh, so that was year one. Year two was um, COVID. And um, uh, when COVID finished, uh, the Scala as a music venue was still locked down, but they allowed us access to go and film our interviews. So by then, Ali and I had researched who we wanted to speak to, having decided that we wanted to speak to a lot of people, not just a small group. Um, And we wanted those people uh, to be relatable um, and to also have a name uh, so that if if the audience for our film wanted to look them up, um, they could find they could Google those people or sorry, search engine those people and, and find them quite easily. So we went with people who were young in the audience at the time at Scala, but went on to be musicians, writers, artists, activists, actors, um, and so forth. Uh, So that was our sort of methodology for finding the interviewees. So that was like, I think, year two. Year three, we spent editing for a year and a half. Everybody was working on other jobs at the same time. Um, And then the the fourth year uh, was spent releasing the film. And here we are, that brings us up to date. Right, right. So when that finger turned on you, (laughs) how then did Ali come into the mix? 
Oh, good point. Oh, so I'll just to briefly say, I said, okay, I'll do it if he does. He does it with me because um, <laughs> Ali and I had worked together on the book, and I knew I couldn't do it on my own because I really like to talk things through. Mm. And with filmmaking, there's a lot of decisions to make, and like I guess if you're a single person, you just want doing it on your own. You just sort of do that process in your head. Um, but Ali and I. Uh, figured it out together. I mean, we, we've sort of been creatively married since about 2016, one way or the other, working on the Scala. It's been quite a, it's it's been quite an interesting sort of working relationship, particularly as as regards the Scala. You're, you're you're dealing with the dynamic of someone who pretty much is the Scala, Madam Scala, you know, who was the program manager of the Scala, and me, who was a punter. So I think it's a really good dynamic to have those two sides kind of reflected. Although, as I say, the the, the film is from the audience's perspective, not the manager's perspective. Yeah. I mean, did you remember each other from those days? Was there any interaction from those, you know, early Scala days? No, not at all. I mean, sorry, Jane. So, um, no, I mean, I was, I was, I was 16 and Jane was not 16. And, you know, I was, I was, I was a punter and, and Jane was like staff. So, um, so no, but I did actually, the first time I did meet, meet, uh, quote unquote Jane was um, when I was writing a book about British cult movies in 1999 uh, um, called Your Face Here British cult movies since the 60s um, and because it had a chapter on Clockwork Orange in it and obviously the Scarlet Association has a significant association with the clock with the Clockwork Orange um, it was recommended I can't remember who Jane will probably kill him now but someone said go and talk to Jane about a Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Um, so I so I rang Jane and and she and and given that it was probably like six years after the the, the rawness of that court case, she was naturally completely understandably not interested in talking about talking about a clockwork orange. Um, but that was the first time I spoke to her. Yeah, but it wasn't probably for another kind of like 15, 16 years that we properly sort of met up and and, and started working together. Right, right. And how do you, because, you know, like, look, you've made this film together, right? You've worked together for so long now. But how did that relationship build, right? What were those kind of initial kind of workings? How did you establish, you know, the voice that you have together? Well, it's interesting. We sort of worked in shifts. We, we, I think, first of all, we, we sort of have the same sense of humour, um, which is probably a bit childish and um, bad taste. Uh, so I think, first of all, we liked, we knew that we liked each other. We liked the same music. We liked the same films. We had lots of points of interest between us. So we, there was kind of samper, you know, as they say in, in French, um, kind of relationship. Um we also have different ways of working in that I tend to get up very early and do my best work first thing. Um, Ali tends to work very late. And I'd experienced this with the publisher of the Scala book as well, Harvey Fenton at Fab Press. He had the same kind of working pattern. So I knew that um, it was a sort of jigsaw way of working, which was going to be quite successful. Um, Ali is a great journalist and a really good sub-editor and I absolutely relied on him with the book to um, iron out all my spelling mistakes and grammatical errors 
Um, so, uh, and I think he, um, I write very quickly, Al is very painstaking and polishes um, the, the work. And I think that the Scala documentary sort of went the same way, um, that all my years of working on, you know, for, for distribution companies and, you know, budget setting, spreadsheets, um, you know, kind of procedural stuff. I brought all of that to the mix. And Ali, who's also a musician, as well as a writer, and a journalist bought something more creative, I think, to the package. It's also for those who believe in horoscopes and the zodiac. Um, Jane's birthday is literally the day after mine. Okay. Uh, we're, we're, we're both Taurians, and for those who subscribe to such things, people will um, immediately <laughs> suspect that's two bulls in a field, not budging, locking horns, and spraying mud with their hooves everywhere. But the upside of that is that Taurians are hard as nails and we slog and we slog and we slog and we have the most tremendous stamina and we get through it. Aha. Well, I mean, obviously, it definitely worked, you know, definitely worked. Mm. It's, I, I really liked the fact that the interviews were in a scala, you know, because the architecture of the place is so distinctive. And it invokes, right, all of these feelings and emotions when you see it in that stairwell and just, you know, all of these different things. Like, when you were, like, working out the interviews and stuff like that, like, did you kind of know the best places in your minds where this should take, these interviews would take place? Or was it just on the day, just seeing what worked? That's a really interesting question, and we did have a lot of talk about this beforehand, before they even entered the building, and where we thought particular kind of interviewees would be best placed within the Scala. Um, there's a bar right at the top of the Scala, which we immediately nicknamed the Edward Hopper Bar, because it has this beautiful kind of hopperish kind of vibe. It's got that kind of Bukowski hopperish vibe about it. Um, it actually looks very sort of Lynchian. Um, and there were certain filmmakers like Peter Strickland that I particularly wanted to place right slap bang there because I thought he'd look great there. Mary Harron looks great up there as well. Um, there were certain other zones that um, look sort of Kubrickian. The um, designer of the Scala um, is a sister of the current owner, Guttara Bissett, who has done an extraordinary uh, design job inside in terms of the colour scheme and what have you. And there are parts of the Scala now that look incredibly Kubrickian. And very Lynchian as well. I think probably they're the two most foremost directors you possibly had in mind. And certain of our interviewees, like Paul Burston, the gay activist and writer, looks absolutely fabulous against that red wall. It's beautiful. Obviously, we had help from our film's colourist as well, fantastic colourist. Um, but yeah, there, there, there's definitely different kind of vibes and atmospheres at different zones of that building. It's a real, It's a real character in and of itself in the movie. It is. We also had, there was a practical consideration that we were uh, hiring the crew for the day. Uh, and it was a very small crew. We just had like one DOP, Sarah Appleton, who, um, uh, and then our line producer, Michelle, who came from the National Film and TV School, 
she um, bought with her a sound recordist um, to do boom and mic recording to get good quality sound rather than just camera sound. Mm. Um, so we were a very small crew, but we were working under um, COVID health and safety um, requirements. As you remember, you, you couldn't stand too close to each other. You had to mask up. Um, so we we're all sort of like doing all of this, wearing masks and, and being socially distanced. Um, uh, it's a big building and we had to group the interviewees in different parts of the same building so that we didn't spend half a day sort of resetting up the lights and the uh, camera and um, the sound equipment um, in very geographically remote parts of the building. So that practicality came in and then that became complicated in the editing when we didn't want to um, kind of cut from one person in exactly the same part of the building. Um, yes. Then you saw somebody else in exactly the same part of the building. Uh, that is quite confusing to an audience. Um, it sort of looks like people have just swapped chairs and you haven't even noticed. So, um, yeah, it was, it was not without its challenges. Also, we were having a sort of um, film around the building work um, that was taking place during lockdown as well. And I think I think a few feathers were ruffled on both sides, put it that way. We certainly had challenges with um, the audio when you'd suddenly hear this tremendous clanging and banging uh, for about an hour. We'd have to sort of stop filming or, or try and have kind of polite words with them, which I don't think went down particularly well. Do you mind stop building? Do you mind stop doing your job while we arty party feel like just get on with what we're doing so so that wasn't great but somehow we um we, we we got around each other yeah it was really interesting because i think um covid even though it was terrible in so many ways um it, it has kind of like given us certain things and one of the things it gave us was that ability to access a building that was shut to the public um, the other thing that it gave us was the understanding that we could work on Zoom with people who were located in other parts of the country. So we did um, our test interviews during lockdown by Zoom and got a whole load of audio recordings um, that we thought we were using to prep for the film. But in a couple of cases, they actually made their way into the final film. And the reason for this was that um, while nobody was working on big projects during lockdown, um, when it finished, people like Ben Wheatley immediately went off to make Meg 2 mm. um, and was not available to be in our film. But we had like already recorded that audio of him, which is why you hear Ben um, talking about what King's Cross was like and talking about his experience of being in a rowdy audience during the thing and falling asleep during Terminator. But it's why you don't see him in the film. Right. OK. Yeah. We, we lost out to a big shark, honestly. <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear. Ben can't trust me. Um, <laughs> no, but it, it was just the amount of people that you you spoke to and the names that you'd just be like, wait, I think I know that person. And it's just like, oh, that person looks familiar. It's like that voice sounds familiar. And it's just so fascinating that so many 
like creative institutions pass through the scala. Like, because you you see these buildings and these these you know establishments as you know things which you can go and enjoy, whether it's like the Tate, the South Bank, you know, the BFI, just all of these different places. But you don't really think about what it does to people, right? And how it can spark someone, maybe, you know, that is the spark for their career, right? The decisions that they make. So it was just fascinating seeing what the Scala brought to all of these individuals. Like, did you even envision that when you, you started this journey? So we knew that um, by, you know, over the years since the Scala closed, we knew it was special, but by the sort of 2000s, 2010s, you're starting to get more people like talking about their creative influences. And we started to understand that people of a certain age probably were in the Scala, like maybe they were also in the National Film Theatre or at the Everyman. People didn't only go to the one cinema, Um, but there was a kind of thread. And I think the thread was also that the Scala, because it was quite unconventional as a place in terms of its programming, its presentation, the people that worked there, the people that were attracted to the Scala were people who were a little bit edgy, a little bit outsiderish, and didn't feel entirely at home in maybe more conventional settings. So because of that, you had a sort of like left field creativity that links the people that were in our film. Maybe Ali could say more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the thing. I think we sort of intuited that that some people would have gone. We knew for a fact that some people did go just through the grapevine because people would tell us, oh, you know, we, we saw someone and such and such of the Scala. Um, why don't you contact them? It was that kind of thing. Um, and as I said, some people we just kind of intuited. You know, we in that horrible phrase, we reached out to about sort of 150 or 200 people. Um, and, you know, a lot of people said, you know, no, I didn't go, or yes, I did go, but only like once or twice. I don't really feel my participation would would, would be significant to your film. Um, and some people were like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, I can't wait. Um, the interesting thing is, as we were making the film, we found out more and more people um, had gone that we, we, we hadn't asked because we just didn't know. You know, I mean, I remember, I remember listening to a podcast in which... Um, uh, the Beastie Boys during that famous 1980, that notorious, infamous 1987 tour when they first came to the UK, um, were taken to a particular cinema by Paul Simon and, and Mick Jones, ex of The Clash, and they went to see Reanimator 2. And I'm like, I know exactly what that cinema, where that cinema would have been. There's only one place those guys went. So, yeah. So frankly, yeah, the Beastie Boys of the class went to the Scala as well, you know. But also, you know, podcast is such an interesting um, format that's really like come to the fore over the last like 10 years or so. Um, and that was also the way that somebody alerted us to the fact that they'd been listening to a podcast Um in which James O'Brien, the great um, radio presenter, was interviewed. And he talks about um, going to see a Lindsay Anderson film at the Scala as a student at the LSE and being surprised when Clockwork Orange came on screen. So um, I think 
what podcasts do, like unlike other um, forms of journalism, is they allow a sort of like free flowing conversation to um, unfold, uh, which you don't really get that in in kind of like newsprint or um, on radio in quite the same way, which tends to be much more editorially focused. And I should imagine yeah. that actually, you know, if James had said this in a different context, it might well have been cut out of the story, but a podcast has got the time and the space for it. And just, well, I, just, that's a really interesting point. And just to say that James O'Brien gets like... <laughs> Like thousands of requests today uh, for for things, but he very specifically chose to answer our email because he said it was one of the most random requests he'd ever heard, and it completely intrigued him, which we loved. <laughs> oh, that's great! I I think that's very true, Jane, because a lot of the times, but you even get it with podcasts, right? A lot of the times, you know, I'll I'll throw in a request to speak to someone. And, you know, the, the PR agency will be like, oh, yeah, we can give you 10 minutes or we can give you 15 minutes. And it's just like, that doesn't really Not work. Enough, yeah. Doesn't work. You can't have a, a, a great conversation in that amount of time. And I think that's the issue a lot of the times with radio and print that the conversations are so short or the spec or the word count is short. So even though they might have a long conversation they've got to cut it down to a hundred words and absolutely our most fascinating conversations have always taken place on podcasts because you really can broaden that conversation out it's been great mm. yeah yeah but i thought the conversations in the documentary were fantastic and just the way everyone was so infused Right. It is, I, I'm sure you've had conversations in the past with people and it can be like getting blood from a stone, which I don't actually understand that expression. I don't if stones don't bleed. But anyway, <laughs> it can be difficult. I can right? I can yeah, I can tell you as a former film journalist that going into interview certain celebrities and hotels was just nightmarish experiences <laughs> and desperately trying to come up with interesting questions for them while they just gaze at you just with complete contempt. Like just just answer the set questions and go away. Do you know what I mean? So I mean what is what is really sorry, Jim. I sorry, go on. Oh, I was just, just going to like chip in and say we did do our research. We um like we didn't interview anyone that we hadn't already spoken to on the telephone. Mm. Um, so we knew whether people could talk and what their enthusiasm levels were. Um, we did have a couple of people that we interviewed whose style of presentation was a bit more downbeat than others. Um, we were actively looking for people with energy that we could capture in our film um, yeah. because we knew that we wanted it to be a, a kind of fast and furious, um, uh, kaleidoscopic, expressionistic piece of work. Um, the music does a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of like establishing the energy and the mood of the film. Um, in a couple of cases, we had people, we had one interviewee who talked for four hours. Um, we interviewed like 50 people. So, and our film is 90 minutes. So um, obviously there's not very much you can do with a four hour interview. Um, the, the most successful interviewees that we had were people that speak very naturally in sound bites mm. and they were funny. Um, so we chose to pick out bits 
of the interviews that made us laugh or cry because um, that so that was the sort of starting point it's starting to boil down the interviews into something manageable right right you'll notice a lot of the interviewees are having the having a blast while they're mm. i mean a lot of them are just laughing as they're talking you know people were so happy to kind of be there yeah no i think that really it the energy really comes across and that's why i, I just i'm fascinated by it i was one you know because having conversation is not an easy thing right people think it's eat up you just talk Right. Oh, how hard can talking be? But it to get people to be able to open up, to get people to exude that energy, that excitement for something. Mm. Right. It, it, it takes a lot. You have to ask the right things. You have to create the right vibe in the room. So when you were doing this, and you you know you've got people in these different parts of the building, right? So maybe people are on their own for a little bit did you you know give people music to listen to like what was the thing to kind of create that energy and keep that energy up for you be able to capture it firstly the scala itself as a building i mean as i say you know yourself when you when you go into places you haven't been for a very long time whether it's an old house or where you lived or an old school building that memory trapdoor just springs open Mm. And it all comes flooding out. And I think, you know, when they entered the building, the hair stood on the back of their neck and their eyes just bulged. And they were like, oh, my God, I remember when I, what I was doing in that corner, uh, whether it was illegal or not, in that space, what I was watching. Yeah, I mean, that that massively, location massively helps. And we were so lucky to, to get the Scala as a, as a living location. Oh, man, definitely. It'd be interesting to you know, think what this might have been if you didn't have the Scala building, you know, if you had to do the interviews somewhere else, like what would this have been? Because I'm sure you could have got interesting conversations, but they would have been different, I imagine. I think that's such a good point, Kevin. And, I, you know, we looked at a lot of documentaries when we were preparing for the film. And um, we knew that we didn't want to do a sort of studio-based, um, yeah. you know, when you see there's a kind of like a sort of documentary trope, which is like the person being interviewed comes in and, you know, they get filmed settling down in their chair. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there's a real sort of trend for that at the moment. And we knew that we didn't want to, you know, do that um do do that sort of trope um we knew that we weren't going to have much space for people to talk so there were going to be fragments and often you'd hear their voices but you'd be looking at something completely different mm. like a bit of archive footage or a movie clip or you know a graphic or something like that so yeah that's how we sort of came together i mean if, if we were going to do this again i definitely want more people walking around the building itself because whenever people do that i'm always very excited you know when you've got someone like princess julia um you know the dj and great fashion icon walking down the stairs um or you've got one of our ushers vic roberts um ferreting around in in, in the back of the scala it's, it's always very visually exciting to me so to be honest i wish we'd done a little bit more of that people literally wandering around you know 
I don't. I don't know why we we didn't actually. To be honest, it's it was about logistics. The reason we didn't we did try that at the beginning, and and we used quite a bit of that footage actually comparatively in the film. Um, but it was it was cumbersome and it was awkward. And when we had like four different interviewees yeah. in the day, and we wanted to give them an hour each to speak, trying yeah, to yeah. pick up shots actually took quite a long time you know um that that is true and you know to, as, as jane says to heard kind of like sound sound people and you know camera people up and down these interminable number of marble stairs is, is actually quite exhausting i mean the the people who worked at the scala would often have stories about humping you know film canisters with, with you know in a building without a lift up interminable numbers of stairs for hours on the end up and down up and down and i think when you're making a film you know there's Obviously, as I say, there's a great temptation to go creatively off the leash and just have people buzzing around everywhere. But you're right, it's just not really practical. Yeah, I've carried film canisters upstairs. A few. Uh, I've worked in a cinema when I was at uni and I, I was a floor supervisor and in the projection. But there was only one lift. So when the cinema sold out, it's all customers in the lift. And I'm trying to like take this... <laughs> take the film from the bottom booth to the top booth. And it's just like, ah, oh, and you just right, got to take the stairs and just lugging Lord of the Rings up the stairs. And you're just like, God damn. <laughs> I, I, I feel you. When I, when I was a kid, I used to, um, I used to deliver cash registers, like huge, heavy metal cash registers to, to, to stalls around the ideal home exhibition, the daily mail ideal home exhibition. And we had one service lift, which would stink of, um, of cockroaches. And I would see them. They just kind of brown swarm, Kind of nesting in, in 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 the walls of the lift, and the smell was indescribable. But yeah, I, I yeah, to hump those metal cash registers in the days before you know electronic Casios was 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 quite, or even you know, drop and pin machines, or whatever it is, was 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 an extraordinary experience. Absolutely. <laughs> oh dear, but you know the the way it was done, just it does work. It does work. <coughs> Sorry, um. The visual style of this, who's kind of, you know, imagination did that pop from? Like, where did you settle on, on that aesthetic? Well, we looked at, like I said, we looked at quite a lot of fairly conventional documentaries in the lead up um, to uh, making the film. But we also looked at some feature films, non-documentaries that, um, and and there are three that are our biggest stylistic influences in making this documentary. And the first one was the great rock and roll swindle, Gillian Temple film about the Sex Pistols, which is kind of like a sort of mock documentary in some ways. Um, it's very rough and ready. Uh, the second one was This Is Spinal Tap, which is also a mock documentary mm. um, and has those kind of like interview sequences in it. And, and that's what we were actually trying to capture with some of our interview sequence. And um, Ali will tell you about the third. Um, uh, I mean, main... the, the, the third, which I think is probably our most important um, stylistic influence is 24-Hour Party People by Michael Winterbottom. Which, funnily enough, is again kind of a sort of fake docudrama, you know, or it is a docudrama in a way. Um, yeah, that, and, and just the energy and anarchy of that film, and just the way it kind of weaves, um, you know, those kind of 
postmodern kind of flourishes with um with is this real or is this not real or is this someone's misremember you know mismemory or what um was incredibly exciting to us so yeah th th those three for sure and also um this is even though as you can see we're no spring chickens i'm 60 <laughs> and ali's 50 something um, oh. This is our first film. This is our debut film. And I think that there's a grand tradition with debut filmmakers of just throwing everything and the kitchen sink at their first film. Whether it's because, because you never know when you get another chance. You mm. just think, you know what I mean? It's just like, just pour everything. And also, just, just on a kind of graphic, um, aesthetic level, the film was meant to replicate those kind of amazing programs that the Scala had, those, those very kind of punk-inspired, fanzine-inspired kind of kind of programs, you know? Um, you know, very eclectic, very kind of low and high art together. In the film, we literally have high art talking to low art in, in, the, in the shape of John O'Comfort talking about the Warriors. And it's that kind of feeling that low and high art are equal and there is no division between them. They shouldn't be, it, it, you know, each has their merits. Um, and that was, that was, that was a big kind of stylistic, you know, um, influence on, on how we use graphics and how we used um, the, the, the devices of, of, of film genre itself in our film. I and mean, we've got things like sort of split screen, lots of grain, um, lots of jump cuts, which we deliberately didn't smooth over. Um, because what the hell is punk? Leave them in. Do you know what I mean? So, so it's that it was that kind of attitude. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I thought it really stood out. It looked great. I struggled with some of it on the visual front, um, but I could, I, I, you know, I could see what you were doing. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I, the thing is, Kevin, you're right. There's a lot of text on screen. We relied on, you know, a lot of like on-screen labels saying who people are, um, but also dates and explanations because there's no um, narration, there's no voiceover, which is a little bit unusual for documentaries. You usually have something that ties it all together nicely. But I do realise that is extremely challenging for um, actually all the audience to have so much information thrown at them, um, you know, visually as well as audibly. But for someone who has, um, you know, a, a sight impairment of any nature, it must be an absolute nightmare. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it, you know, you, you do kind of be like, oh, man, like, I wonder what that was, you know, so th there is that. But like looking at the website, there's, a, you know, all the information there and, and uh, other places. I think I've been able to kind of garner some of it. And when I get my Blu-ray working, I'll be able to check out the uh, audio description of it. But one thing I'm I am always curious about is it is something you see a lot, right? At the beginning of a film, there'll be like, um, this is how it began. Or at the end, it'll finish at a point and it'll be like, and in the years to come, they did this and this and this, but it's just text. So from a filmmaker's point of view, what, like, when you're putting all of this together, what is the kind of decisions that you're making to do it visually rather than have someone narrate that bit even if you know you don't necessarily have to have a narrator all the way through 
you know, like some documentaries, but just narrating some of the larger text, like what, how do you weigh that kind of thing up? I think we couldn't really, sorry, Jane. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we both have things to speak to this, um, to this question. It's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think, I think we couldn't, you know, if you're going to use a narrator, you probably have to use a narrator all the way through. Don't have a narrator partially because it just looks, it just sounds weird. Um, I think also because this really is a film of voices as well, to have one more voice into the mix would have just been overkill. Um, so we made the decision to text, possibly because we're writers, we're both writers. So, right, you know, we're, we're not really filmmakers, we're writers. So that's a kind of, a, that's, you know, we, we, we were taking kind of writerly approach to this film, certainly in the way, certainly kind of editorially. That's how we sort of set out things in terms of um, how we sort of group together the acts, like act one, act two, act three. Mm. Um, and, and, and just kind of narrativizing something that's actually an incredibly sprawling and complex subject. I mean, goodness, I mean, I wish we had, you know, a 12 hour miniseries to do justice to the Scala, which in itself probably wouldn't begin to do justice to the Scala story. Um, we only had 96 minutes. But yeah, I, I, I think that, that possibly has a thing to play with it. Yeah, I mean, I think the question of narration aside, the film has a sort of fairly classical narrative structure, an act one and an act three that are half as long as act two, which has act two, part one, act two, part two, at the end of which classically everything goes to hell in the handbasket. And in our film, that's the moment at which uh, you get um, the cinema programmer, Mark Vallon, the American guy, talking about um, an incident happening that ended in a death at the Scala. Uh, and then it sort of spirals down and then you kind of pick up a little bit and look at the legacy. Um, but our producer, Andy Stark, was also our editor. He's a great producer who really wants to edit. Um, and one of the things that he would often say to us was, no, we're going to kind of like start this story here to kind of hook people in. People aren't stupid. Um, we don't have to explain everything bit by bit. Um mm. And there's a sort of classic um, uh, filmmaking maxim of um, show, don't tell, um, which must be, again, very annoying to um, frustrating to people who have a sight impairment because, you know, you need to be told. And you if you can't rely on the visual information because of your sight, that's a real tough thing. Um, so I really thank you for bearing with the film um, with all those challenges. But... You know, like I said, I think there's so much information flying around. And I know that people who watch our film, um, you know, who are fully sighted, miss a lot of things about it. Um, because often it's on the second or even the third viewing that they're seeing and hearing things that they didn't notice before. Um, but this, our subject is repertory and repertory means repeating programs. Mm. So I think that's kind of appropriate. I think the film, the film as Jane infers, definitely demands or, or, or invites repeated viewings, absolutely, because there is so, as you say, there is so much detail in it that, that you'd miss the first time round. Um, I mean, we've seen it now personally about 7,945 times, and there's still stuff that I see in it going, oh, wow, particularly on a bigger screen, you know, not on a laptop. Um, to our credit, I, we did actually go quite... We, we could have done a lot more with the text, Um you know, certainly in captioning, and I, we were very, we we're very generous, I think, and spare with with the captions. I mean, for instance, there are people there in that film 
who have done and are doing extraordinary things, which when we were captioning them, like, um, for instance, Joanne Seller, who's in the film, who was 19 years old when she was dragging dead bodies out of the scarlet. Um, went on to become Paul Thomas Anderson's producer. You know, she's produced things like Boogie Nights or There Will Be Blood, you know, Magnolia. She's a really big figure in Hollywood. Um, and it was my sort of, um, and I wish that we could put in the caption, this is Joanne's, you know, she's like big shot Hollywood producer. But I th- it was Jane Stashes and she's like, no, do you know what? If people are interested in these people, Google them mm. or, or, or search engine them, you know, they'll find out. There were other layers, you know. Same with people like Chris Watson, who's um, the guy, the sound engineer you see at the end, near the end of the film, who was the co-founder of one of the most extraordinarily influential bands that ever were, Cabaret Voltaire, you know, the Electronic Sheffield Band. But we don't spoon feed the audience in this way. We don't say, "Look who it is." If they're interested, they'll 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 hopefully find out, you know. Um, I, at this point, unfortunately, have to give you, for myself, a five-minute warning. Um, I have to, like, log off at two o'clock sharp and dash out of the house to get my broken tooth fixed. Um, but, Kevin, I think that Ali can continue if you would like to continue the conversation beyond 2 p.m. Okay. Great. Cool. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> with, you know, 90 minutes... Right. What was the thinking when it came to the t- the length of this? What, like, was there, a, you know, a thought of making it longer? Or, That's or... such a great question. And you've really put your finger on it. So I wanted to. So I think as a former cinema programmer, um, cinema manager, I like films to be 85 minutes long because you can get many screenings in one day and you you don't lose the audience's attention and you keep the energy up. Um, Ali wanted the film to be about three hours. Three hours long, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) I thought thought if Edgar Wright can get away with it with his Sparks film, why shouldn't we? And he's got just as many interviews, or actually more. Um, I mean, that's that. To be honest, that that's that's the that's the underconfidence of a debutante filmmaker to think that you couldn't somehow corral a story into it into 96 minutes. And, you know, a a lot of things come out of a kind of underconfidence of a debutante filmmaker. Um, But then when you do them and then you realize, you know, it's perfect. Actually, that's, that's what it should be. But I think also quite seriously, um, if we had had the luxury of three hours, which probably wouldn't have been a cinema experience, unlike the Sparks film, it would have been something like a sort of um, Netflix three-part or a BBC three-part arts programme. I'm not saying we don't want that, but (laughs) we haven't got that. We would would have loved that because what we would have done is go into a lot of detail about... um, how the Scala was set up in 1976 to 1978. We've gone into a lot of detail there and a lot more detail about how it finished because there's just a very quick like um, um, caption on screen that says the lease ran out. Um, and I think people blink and miss it. I'm still getting people coming up to me now saying, so how do you feel about the fact that Clockwork Orange killed the Scala? And I'm like, it didn't. The lease ran out. You saw that on the film. And they're like, Eh? you know so I think we would have had a lot more three hours would have been lovely we would have put a lot of information in um, that maybe made more sense 
But the beauty of the sort of 90 minute version is that it has this energy and it has this sort of expressionistic freshness about it that audiences have really responded to. Yeah, no, I, I think the time, you know, it, it is a good time, right? Because I think you, you consume it and you can get into it. You know, and you're not distracted or anything like that. It it works. I think a longer time, it you know, it's definitely fascinating. And is that something that you could do? Maybe like create a different edit for you know BBC Netflix or something like that. That's a good question, Kevin. And actually, um, not in the cinematic medium or the visual medium. We're currently editing a massive project, which is. Um, the oral history of 80s and 90s subculture using the trims and the outtakes uh-huh. that we necessarily produced during this movie. Because obviously when we interview people for an hour at a time, we're only using a fraction, a thumbnail of what they spoke about. But given that they talked for as an aggregate many, many hours about subculture, what we're sitting on is an incredible opportunity for a visionary publisher out there to pick up what would be, in effect an overview of subculture from the 80s and the 90s, using the Scala as a kind of little peg to hang out on. Mm. Or even something like a, a gallery like the Tate, right? A huge exhibition, like the V&A exploring with some video installations and, you know, the programs and everything like that could be fascinating. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk to our friend Isaac Julian about that. We'll say, yeah, how do you do that, Isaac? <laughs> <laughs> um, listen guys I've got to sign off now I just want to say Kevin it's been really lovely speaking with you and I'm sorry to cut my bit of the conversation short but I will leave you in the very capable hands of <laughs> Ali Catral <laughs> hey, good no, luck it, at the dentist is your, is your dentist at 2.30 Jane oh, I've got to go it's 2.15 see you guys oh, okay. thanks Jane Cheers. bye <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the very incapable hands of, of Ali Castro, who who cannot speak to any of the managerial stuff, unfortunately, because that that's all James' department. But I can definitely speak as a as as as, as a messed up punter who went to the Scala and um, just just as a first time filmmaker, sort of dealing with some of those challenges. Yeah, mm, I mean, what was this like having gone to <laughs> the Scala as a sixteen year old? And then, yeah, you know, Sorry. being able to tell that history of it. Oh man, it was it was it was an enormous privilege and an honor. And just to work with Jane, who, as I said, is like she's Madame Scarlet, frankly. You know, I mean, what she doesn't know about the Scarlet could be written on the head of a pin. Um, it's it's just an extraordinary honor. I mean, I always kind of joke that she's my my Baron Frankenstein and I'm her monster because she literally made me into the film right. I, I, I became. Having gone to the Scarlet, you know what I mean. So it's 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 a very strange, surreal um, experience, but also a massive privilege to be able to bring this incredibly important institution story to the screen. You know, I mean, I, I genuinely think the Scarlet is more significant and important, you know, as as a as a, as a London institution than, than than something like I don't know the ICA or the Roundhouse or whatever. It really is huge, and I think it's really almost the subculture equivalent of something like the Victoria and Albert Museum. Do you know what I mean? It is that big. It's that yeah. sprawling and that, and that important, actually. Yeah, it, it's it's always fascinating with places like this. And when you when they've gone and you hear people talking about it, 
I used to go to this uh, a nightclub in Peckham called Laser Drone. It was drum and bass. And it was, oh, my God, it was such a great venue, man. Like, mm -hmm. you go there and, you know, like, people like Brocky and Deck, uh, Groove Rider, Fabio be playing. Oh, man. Hitting the wall. Wow. Like, hubla, hubla. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then when the lights came on, you'd look and be like, oh, this place is nasty but dumb, yeah <laughs> when the lights are off and the music is pumping it was just incredible and i i stumbled across um a facebook page and you had loads of people talking about laser drone and it was just the way people talk about these things it, it's just fascinating so you know what i mean having the opportunity to tell that story like I can only imagine how just incredible that would have been. It's it's an it's an honor, but also incredibly scary because there are so many people who went. Like a million people went through the doors of the Scarlet, uh, and also you've got a whole generation who never met who never went because they were too young. Um, some of whom weren't even born when the Scarlet in nineteen ninety nine set up as a nightclub, but who have their kind of Atlantean lost city of Atlantis kind of idea of what the Scala was, particularly programmers and, and, and staff of some other uh, cinemas in London, particularly people like, you know, the staff of the Garden Cinema in Covent Garden, um, or the staff of the Prince Charles, who very unashamedly take their legacy from, from the Scala, particularly in their showings of all nighties and things like that, or the Rio in Dalston, you know, things, mm. single, single screen cinemas that have that kind of vibe of the Scala about them, although, although they're not 100% because they'd be shut down for health and safety reasons. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so, 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 so it, it was scary, you know, when you've got people whose, whose memories are very different, uh, or, or let's say whose memories kind of clash, um, and who also feel an extreme sense of ownership over the Scala, um, mm. as we all as we all do, as I as I do, you know, as I did. I mean, it literally became one of the foundation stones of my life. Absolutely, you know, one of the biggest blocks of cultural DNA, DNA in me, you know. And certainly for Jane, who um, started a family there, you know, um, married the uh, you know the, the front of house manager, um, took the cats, the Scala cats, home. So it really became Jane's family, you know. Yeah. And, and, for the, and for the rest of us, it was a metaphorical family. It was a family mm -hmm. of, of, of different kinds of tribes and people and, you know, all, all, all kinds of different kind of alternative folk who all came together um, to, to create this kind of firestorm of energy, you know, an artistry. Yeah, it, it, that's a, it did remind me a little bit of the Prince Charles, but, mm. you know, <laughs> the, the, the Prince Charles does seem like Scala light, as, <laughs> as, as it were. Yeah. As you said, yeah. you, you, couldn't, you couldn't do that now. <laughs> you couldn't uh, do no, that. no. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean. God bless them, I and mean, they, you know, they they do have a good pro. I, I, <laughs> they do have a good program. I mean, funny enough, someone again, someone like the Garden Cinema has the kind of eclecticism of the program of the Scala. Um, I mean, they really are doing God's work, I think, in that respect. You know, good on them. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even if you thought a tincture of the Garden, a tincture of the Rio Dulce, a tincture of Prince Charles, you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't even begin to get close. To what, to what the Scala had, but 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 they're trying. They're really trying, and God bless them for that. Oh yeah, I've had some great great um, times at the Prince Charles, but I felt oh man, I felt envious. I felt it because it seemed like the place that I would have gone to. 
you know yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if i could have i would have gone to that place man it, it did seem great but how do you and you, you briefly mentioned it but how do you deal with like the clashing memories because you know when you it's even when you talk about to your friends right about something that happened and you'd be like yo remember when you did this and you're like i didn't do that and be like, yeah, <laughs> no yeah. remember we were here and blah, blah, blah. right so i imagine with this right people would be like oh the night when this happened and someone's like didn't happen like that like how yeah. did you kind of coalesce that kind of stuff there's, there's a funny theory that memory actually kind of deletes backwards if you like so the older we get it's a bit like a vhs tape you know what i mean so you know the memory is kind of going rewinding like that and that's why mm -hmm. um that's why sometimes when we're very old we have extraordinarily vivid memories of the youngest point in our lives that can't remember what we had for breakfast yeah um and that and that's that's certainly the case with me you know in, in my advanced dinosaur years of 53 54 um Weirdly enough, we had Nick, we have Nick Kent, the rock journalist in our film, the great rock journalist, um, talking about the extraordinarily iconic gigs. Um, the word iconic is incredibly overused, but in this case, I think it, 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 it fits, of Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and the Stooges on consecutive nights on the 14th and 15th of July, 1970, 1972, uh, with the photos taken by Mick Rock, who was in the audience, and his photos became the covers of transformer and raw power just just incredible slice of rock history and they all took place at the scala um or it was called king's cross cinema in those days but essentially it's the scala mm. and nick kent who who possibly i may be um doing a disservice but possibly can't remember what he had for yesterday's breakfast could recall in second by second detail those lou reed and stooges gigs it was incredible he spoke to us for about 40 minutes non-stop with a second by second blow account of those gigs. It was absolutely extraordinary. Um, so that's, and you know, that, 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 that's an account of someone whose memory is crystal clear and sharp. But as you rightly say, other memories, particularly when it comes to the Scala, and particularly because, <laughs> let's be honest here, a lot of the time spent at the Scala was in a heightened state of consciousness, <laughs> including, including myself. I remember waking up screaming during a during a screening of Dougal and the Blue Cat. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Um, you know, um, I think I think in those cases there is a kind of argument to say, do you know what? Just print the myth. Mm. Just just mm. Pr just print the myth and and and, and sort of, you know sort out the bones later. You know, pick out the bones of it later. Do you know what I mean? Um, also, I mean, you know, when you talk to so many people as we did, I mean, we've got nearly 50 people on our film. Obviously, there's going to be clashing memories. That's just that's, that's just going to happen, right? So you have to pick the one that most people seem to have agreed on. <laughs> you know, um, there's a point point of fact. There was a um, there's a story that, that, that Stephen Woolley, the owner of the Scarlet, tells of, uh, of the late, great Shane McGowan. Um, urinating into the audience during a screening of Attack of the 50-Foot Woman oh uh, and, be and being manhandled and thrown out by Stephen Woolley for that. Uh, apparently he didn't, it, it wasn't the first time he did it. He, apparently he was, this was quite a thing for Shane. Um, but when you talk to other people, they will say, no, it wasn't Stephen Woolley who dragged him out. It was me. I was the bouncer and I, and I, and I manhandled him out into the street. 
Um, and also, by the way, it wasn't Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman. It was a Roger Corman film called Let's Kill Uncle. Um, so, so yeah, people people's memories are fallible over the years, you know. Mm. Um, but as I say, I, you know, in many cases, the, the the myth, you know, is 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 almost more important, you know, than the, the truth. I mean, that, I'm, I'm I'm this is I'm committing some heresy here because I'm a journalist, and for me, you know, the the, the truth is is you know is the grail, you know. Yeah. Um, so so I should not be speaking like this. But I think as a filmmaker, you know, in a different discipline, as a and, you know, and as a creative, um, there, there, there's an argument for saying, you know what. Let's go with it. Let's let's go with the myth. You know, they are they are bigger. You know, yeah, so it's no, more interesting. Yeah, definitely. I think if you're covering a news story, right? Mm. Yes, the truth is oh, the completely. most. Important. Yeah, I would I would just make stuff up as a journalist. You know, <laughs> I mean, some um, people have. But I, but, you know, <laughs> well, I probably haven't. You know, at some point, but um, it's certainly not to any detriment of, of, of anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it is. But I do agree that, that you know, the myth there's a charm about it, right? And especially when someone they're not lying, right? They no. don't believe what yeah. they're saying. And, oh, and yeah. so there's something about that, and just the fact that you know I mean, you there's so many kind of memories about this one thing and even mm. if they're slightly different it just helps tell that story it's it great it just gives it another it's element fun. it's mm. absolutely yeah it gives it another level yeah yeah i with you know because you did so much work here was there ever a thought of like taking some of this material and basically kind of creating like bonus material for the website or social media totally totally so um this film's i mean I, I know podcasts are eternal and people could be listening to this in 2070 for all i know and if you are i really hope things have gotten better please i hope you save the world frankly um because we're in a dreadful old state here in 2024 mm. um but yeah okay so but 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 to yoke it to a particular time and era and specifically this year, um, the film comes out on BFI Blu-ray on the 22nd of January, and there are tons of extras by us on that Blu-ray of, of, of the extra interviews we did. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so so, so you're in for a treat. They The BFI put together a really beautiful package there. And as I said, you know, if, we, if we're lucky enough, and I, and I hope by 2070 um, it's, it's, it's come apart, because publishing is quite glacial, Mm. Um, but we have actually got this kind of oral history out, this book of oral history of um, of, of this of, of subculture. Then that will speak to an awful lot of that as well, and it will make this film look like a thumbnail. And it really, you know, it really will like a fraction of what we had because there is gold there. There is absolute gold, and I wish, I wish we could have included so much more of it. But you know, as I said, we've only got a ninety-six minute film. Um, yeah, but it does. It webs the appetite. Right, it it does make you yeah. want to dig deeper. You I'm know glad I mean? you said that. I really hope it does for audiences. I hope they come away from this going what what with an incredibly long list of films that obviously they'll spend the rest of their life trying to chase down. <laughs> um, but also musically as well, and just mm. it's a bit like when when you went when I went to the Scala, you know, you know, as as a lot of 16, 17 year olds, and this and this experience is universal. 
is that you're it's the kind of time in your life when you're finding out sort of who you are and what you like and kind of one informing the other you know yes. and the scala was a fantastic labyrinth like an alexandrian library of culture for that reason because in that age again or for younger minds generally when you find something you're interested in, it leads to something else, and you start joining the dots between, you know, a movie or an album or a book, you know, or a piece of art. And it needn't necessarily be a cinema that you find this in. It could be a vintage clothes shop or a, a great record or a great secondhand record shop or a bookshop or a library or anything that really sparks that 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 in you. That re that really makes you kind of go, wow, there is so much culture that I'm interested in that I want to find out. Yeah, it, it reminded me of listening to music. Because yeah. I just remember listening to music and then being like, that sounds like a premiere beat. Was that a premiere beat? And then you look at the liner notes and you'd be like, you get a magnifier out and be like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh shit, what, what yeah, that, that was premiere. Oh, it was recording DD Studios. I thought so. Yes. Wait, what was that sound? Oh, it was that sample. Oh, I didn't know that was sampled. Oh, I I'm so glad you said that because I was going to say one of my favorite websites, which is just, I mean, you would lose time on the, I'm, I'm, like literally you'd forget to eat on this website because <laughs> you'll be going down. It's whosampled.com, you know, whosampled.com, which just, it. oh, wow. Which just basically <laughs> tells you who sampled, whatever sample that is and whatever record that is. And you just go down that rabbit hole because you find out, they sampled that, but also they themselves have been sampling that. Mm. And they, you know, it's like it's like a hall of mirrors of sampling. Um, and, and that's when you find out so much, you know, your your music encyclopedia is massively expanded from that sort of thing, which I'm so grateful for. Oh man, I've I've stumbled upon so many different people from that, like from going to gigs and and checking out the warm-up app. You know, that's how I came. The edit yeah, yeah. opened for um oh gosh. I forget the name. They the, the song Sweet Troubled Soul, and I can't remember who the band was, but yeah, they were the opening act. And I was the oh, who are these guys? And it's the editors, you know, is is you stumble on so many people in that mm -hmm. way. So just watching this made me go, Oh, I not seen that film i need to check that film out and oh yeah that's fascinating i need to do totally. that and, and, yeah. and, and again that's a kind of i mean when i'm when i'm going on to whosapper.com obviously the majority of the music is kind of hip-hop and um you know and and that's where i'm finding a lot of my connections from um but there's there's definitely kind of thematic parallels between that and the kind of post-punk kind of era in which yeah. people are mixing and matching um you know culture and fashions and, and, and stylistic things and they're all going to this great big sort of melting pot um and that is again is what we're sort of trying to do with the film you know we're trying to just <laughs> as, as, as as in this kind of kitchen sink kind of way as jane said just trying to just kind of just blast people with so many different kinds of high and low art if you like mm. yeah it, it, the fascinating thing is Early, right watching Scala and then a, a few weeks later I watched another documentary which invoked us as a similar kind of emotion it was um Simone Day, right? right getting getting it back together I think um from 
Tim Mackenzie Jones, I think, is is the guy that directed it. And it's just about a band who made three great albums, but then just weren't getting played. So they kind of split up, but then they're getting sampled and, you know, used all the time. And then they got back together recently. And I think both of these documentaries, very different, but invoke that emotion that wants you to explore, wants you to dig deeper. And they're done in these different ways from a lot of normal kind of, you know, typical documentaries, which, you know, like, you know, just as I know I said about the, the visual aspect of it at the beginning and the end and things like that, not being able to see that. But even with that, right, I I got so much from Scala. I'm so know, glad, like, you know, because... gives you so much, you know? I'm so glad. I'm so pleased you said that because we, we were not interested in the least of making some sort of dewy-eyed nostalgia trip with a bunch of old blokes sitting around weeping, you know, about what they'd lost. I mean... Yeah. Sure. Okay. There's a little tiny bit of that, um, but this was this was more. You know, this is a real call to action. You know, this is a real. You know, to say first of all, um, please go and do likewise. You know, find your community, find your tribe, and do something like this. Um, we tend by a sort of significant metric, we tend to get two kinds of sets of people who come up to us after screenings. Um, one are uh, generally sort of sixty-year-old blokes. Who are who with tears in their eyes, wearing um, scarlet T-shirts that are literally falling apart on their bodies <laughs> as they're walking? Um, who remember w- with infinite clarity what they went to see, um, where it was, and so and, you know this film for them is time travel. It's very immersive time travel. Um, and the other group of people we tend to get are young women under twenty-five who weren't even born when the 1999 iteration of the Scarlet started up as a nightclub mm. who come up and say this film has inspired them so much that at the very least they want to set up their own film club or more permanently go into dis- distribution or exhibition or curation or what have you and I can't tell you how happy about that I am you know and that that is the call to action aspect of this film it's you know if you're inspired by this go and track down those films please enlarge and enlarge your mind um and set up film clubs do this you know try try you know i know that you know leaseholds and rents are extremely extortionate but if at all possible do you know do this in your front room get friends around go and watch films like that curate film nights of your own you know Mm. we need to we need to bring that back as opposed to that kind of very homogenized experience of sitting in front of streamers going flick 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 um, for an hour and a half and by the time you've finished there's nothing you actually want to watch yeah there's definitely something about watching things with people it, it's mm. the thing that I love about a film festival like coming out of the film festival and you're talking to other people and you're being like yo so didn't you think it was interesting when they did that thing and they're like huh I didn't look at it like that. I thought it was more this. You'd be like, oh, that's interesting. 
That's an interesting take, right? I, I, I think I have to think about that when I write this up. You know what I mean? So you, you get that experience. Like you don't always get it out of every press screening you go to. Sometimes everyone just disappears and don't want to talk. But when people want to talk, it's incredible. I love that. Yeah. Totally. I was always quite jealous when I was a, when I was a working film critic um, <clears throat> of going to those press screenings. And most most film reviewers are quite insular, quite shy kind of people. So at the end of the screening, most people kind of like scurry out, you know, mm. uh, in, 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 into the streets of Soho or whatever. You never see them again. Um, whereas my friends in the music press were all moshing together in the mosh pit, <laughs> whichever whichever magazine or paper they're writing for. They were all to, and they all knew each other. You know, but but film reviewing is very different, quite quite solitary. You know, in that yes. respect, yeah, sitting, no. sitting in the dark and then dashing off again. <laughs> so there wasn't so much of that kind of gathering together in groups and talking for hours and hours about about what you thought of it. Yeah, that's very true. Mm. But it would be fascinating, like if you could do because I think, oh, I think it's Unicorn Nights or something like that at the Prince Charles. Like, but if you could do like a Scala Nights, and then you you take a, fi a, a a film, like a memorable film from those Scala days, and you just and everyone can go, and then there's a Q and A afterwards, and you and you just talk about it. That would be great if something like that could happen. I hope so. I mean, it's funny, but you still can't see quite a lot of the films that the Scarlet put on, you know, not easily. You know, they're out of distribution or out of print or whatever. I mean, Thundercrack, which is probably the most notorious of Scarlet's, all of Scarlet's offerings, and that's saying something. Um, for those who don't know Thundercrack, it's about a three hour long uh, psychic. Oh, God, I, I, I can't even begin to explain it. It's kind of it's kind of art house porn. Um but really nasty, shonky art house porn um, that's nearly inaudible. Um, it's very boring and long stretches, but it's then punctuated by the most literally eye-popping, jaw-dropping things. Just absolutely extraordinary. They showed it at the BFI a couple of nights ago. Oh, okay. uh, in, NF in NFT one, in a crowded NFT one, which is absolutely bizarre to think that people were sitting elbow to knees watching a porno. Um, and there were quite a few comments on, on social media saying, Edgar Wright was sitting behind me laughing hysterically. <laughs> <laughs> you think, you know, where was <laughs> the, just the experience of watching a porno in a crowded, in an absolutely crowded, you know, shrieking with hilarity audience is, is, is quite something to consider, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, if they were going to show something, it would probably have to be something like Thundercrack or. Or, or, or Santa Sangre, you know, Thundercrack you can get on on a on Blu-ray <laughs> from an American company on import, but that's the only way you could get it. Huh. You know, things like looking for Mr. Goodbar, um, which again is showing in our in our BFI Scala season all this January. Um, again, incredibly hard to get hold of. It's, it's I think at the moment you can get it on DVD uh, in Spain or something, but it's you know it's it's not been picked up here, so it's still very hard. To find a lot of those kind of classic Scala movies, they're not—they're not all on. You know, you can't all access them by the flick of a mouse or mm. via a streamer. You know. Oh man. Ah, oh. but I think that's the beauty of this documentary. It, it kind of documents all of that stuff. Lets people know that this did actually happen. This yeah. was around. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a taster. It's like a it's like a taster menu. I hope for mm. for, 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 for for incredible cinema. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the start of the rabbit hole, my friend. It's the start. It, of the it really hole. is <laughs> a very dirty rabbit hole. <laughs> very long and dirty rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, dear. this is two headed been... rabbits. Yeah. This has been great, man. I've got I've Thank got a, um, yeah. a Werner Holtzworth, not Werner Holtz, you know, uh, a, a documentary screening to, to I had to pop off to in a second. But oh, what are you saying? Um, it, it's a it's a new documentary that's coming out on Friday. Um, about just Radical Dreamer. Yes. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Showing at the uh, BFI today. It's called Radical Dreamer, isn't it? Yes. I think it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 fun. Yeah. Um, again, it's one of those kind of things. Given that it's Hartzog, who really deserves, like we do, frankly, a kind of twelve-hour mini-series, you know, mini-part series. Um, but yeah, it's it's again, it's a good taster. It's a, it's mm. a good tasting menu of Hartzog. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. But um, this has been great, man. I really appreciate you and uh, jane giving me your time because thank yeah. you no this has been this has been fantastic as i say our our, our best our, our favorite encounters uh, are on podcasts because you really can enlarge the the argument we, we're not we're not tied to particular you know a, a, a rigid kind of time scale and answering the same the same questions and you know i mean we we welcome all press it's lovely um but with podcasts it really is something special and this has been particularly special so i really really thank you for some really great questions Ah, no, no worries, man. I always like I'm, I'm fascinated to hear the stuff myself. So I, I'm just asking things that are fascinating me, right? Mm. Because I don't, you know, I, I guess finding out what your favorite color or your favorite meal could be interesting, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, you know, what I mean? it doesn't give me much. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I'm, I'm curious about is yeah. the, the the next thing, right? That creating this into that this bigger project, would you break it down by year? So a volume a year, or is it just going to be a large, large, large volume? Thematically, so it would be like it would literally be like sex, drugs, rock and roll, but it would it would kind of have a chronology. You know, we would impose a kind of chronology on it. Absolutely, right. Um, but yeah, it would be kind of impossible to do it otherwise because it, is, it would be so. I mean, my goodness. I mean, I'm a, I'm a pro editor, but this, and you know, we may never get it published. I, as I say, I hope um, if people are listening in twenty, you know, in three thousand, the year three thousand, you know, that this book is <laughs> digitized into people's brains um, somehow. But it is, it is a massive, massive editing job, and it's going to take quite a long time. And at the moment, because we're still on the on the kind of press tour um <laughs> we haven't had a single second to do anything um you know my my, my house is a tip it's absolute oh my goodness me i i wouldn't invite anyone around it's absolute tip um i'm eating rubbish i'm just eating crisps and chocolate on the move i understand now why a lot of performers are a bit overweight because when you're on the move doing all this you're just you're just grabbing rubbish Mm. um you know we, we're kind of exhausted in a really brilliant way we've just been running on fumes and adrenaline since last july when we had our uh, world premiere in bologna um just been going to endless 
for festivals and, and events and Q&As and, and because we say yes to everybody, because we love everybody. You know, wh why wouldn't we? Um, and, 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 you know, people that don't. So it, well, that's, re that's really sad. That's really sad. You know, I think, you know, we, we say yes to everyone because we it's, it's, it's important to get the message out there, you know. Um, someone said, another filmmaker said to us the other day, you know, me being nearly 54 and Jane being nearly 60, like, where are you getting the stamina for, from all this? This is like, like, what are you doing? You must be wrecked. Um, and we were like, but why wouldn't you? It's brilliant. You know, it's just it's the adrenaline is keeping is keeping us is keeping us is keeping us on the move. You know, and also it helps that we're we're uh, you know we're dragging around this incredibly anarchic, upbeat film that we get a lovely feedback loop from the audience with because they're enjoying it so much. So it it really pumps us up and keep and keeps us up. You know, keep, well, keep, 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 keeps us our old bones young. <laughs> it, 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 the passion is clear, right? The passion. Ain't passion resonates in the conversation and resonates in the documentary so you've so done glad. a tremendous job man oh man thank you so much thank you so much it's been such um <laughs> at, the, at the stroke of midnight new year's eve i was i was around my friends i was uh, in this house actually i'm cat sitting right now I, my house is not half as lovely as this one that you can <laughs> see behind you um and it, sort of new year's eve I, I just started weeping i think oh my god it was so hard <laughs> <laughs> because it is who knew, right? That filmmaking was incredibly difficult. Who knew? My lord! <laughs> you know, I've I've written books before, and, and that was that was far easier. Even though book writing is very hard too. But this, oh my lord, it, it is. It's as Jane says. It's like putting together a three thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, but there's no picture on the front of the box. <laughs> <laughs> it's all sky. It's all blue pieces. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly that. <laughs> So, but but luckily, it's also a, a, a very collaborative experience, you know. This is why I'm slightly sort of sniffy about the auteur theory. I just think, no, no, no. You you know, everyone's chipping in, everyone's helping to make that movie, and it's just yeah. it's been such an amazing collaborative experience, particularly um, with our with our with our editors. You know, Ed Mills, who's who's absolute trooper, just editing this, you know, when when, when he can, and our and our producer editor Andy Stark, who's just you know legendary. Who's Ben Wheatley and Peter Strickland's producer? Who, as Jane says, is more of a kind of frustrated sort of editor, really. Who's just had such a creative input in this and regularly led us out of the tangled woods when we when we'd gotten lost. Um, and yeah, just 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 the amazing people we've worked with and to have my lord Barry Adamson as your as your soundtrack man for your debut movie. That's just like what a mad dream am I living in? You know. <laughs> Well, I, I think it's 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 great that you're acknowledging that because a lot of people, you know, be like, yes, I did this. And you, know, you don't mention any of the people that helped in the process. So Oh I, God, you know. I mean, and it's and a special shout out also to, to to the graduates of the NFTS school who, you know, film school who helped us as well, you know, who were who were the sound people and and, and the runners and what have you. I mean, you know, really brilliant people who will go on to have hopefully brilliant careers you know um yeah it's it's, it's just been a real trip i mean as i say we're, we're just a couple of writers and you know journalists we're not we're not filmmakers i suppose technically we are now but you know we're not we, we don't come from this world even though you know i mean jane has worked in in the film business and distribution and exhibition and what have you for, for for decades literally decades um i've been I, or i was at least a film writer for about 20 years 
Um, I can never be a film critic again after this experience. Like I'm, I'm cured of that. Cured of criticism. Never again. I, I absolutely swear by. I mean that. Never doing that again because you know there seems a bit of an empathy lack or an empathy gap uh, when, when you're a critic and um, to have experienced the other side, I'm like. I feel deeply ashamed of some of the things I used to write when I when I when I was dissing other people's movies. So it's just like no, never again. So so you know that that's cured me of that. So good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this this is this has been quite a, quite an experience. No, I I think it's important a lot of times that new voices you know step into the scene. Old voices in our case, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, Let's say wise voices. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Seasoned> voices. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, I'll take that. Because <laughs> you know, a season would a seasoned documentary maker have done it how you've done it? Right. Probably then... not. Oh, that's a really good you know what? That's a really, really good question. Probably not. Because I mean <laughs> We we have the kind of um, <laughs> we have we have the sort of enthusiasm of 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 of, of the amateurs, you know, of of, of debutante filmmakers, and and also you know again we have that kind of kitchen sink attitude, which is we may never get another chance. I mean, it's it's so so difficult to 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 get funding, um, to get distribution, to make the to make the thing in the first place. So there's really an attitude of let's just throw everything at the screen now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it could have been a very, very different documentary, particularly if if they focused on the management side. I think the film would have been a lot narrower. I think by concentrating on the audience and the audience experience and 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 how it influences, as we say in the in the incredibly and feasibly long title, um, a whole generation of weirdos and misfits. You know, you really enlarge the picture out. You know, it's it's not really about weirdly. The, I mean, the film isn't really about cinema at all. It's about it's a, it's about it's about you. It's about the audience. You know, it's about us. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's, it's it's about the experience of being young and yeah. discovering things, and about love, and about how you're falling in love with culture. And I think that's really, really important, massively important to to show and portray. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely, man, man. Um, let people know how they can follow you, right? Because I know I can't wait to see you know, the, 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 the blossoming of this project. So how can people follow you and keep track? Oh, okay. So we're on uh, the inevitable Instagram uh, at Scala Cinema or Scala Club Cinema. I can never remember which. It's one of the two. You'll find this, I promise you. <laughs> um, and we have a Twitter account, uh, Scala Club Cinema on Twitter as well. Or is it Scala Cinema? I'm so sorry. Uh, my mind's gone blank. I, we're think, from... <laughs> I think it's Scala Cinema, but the links You're will be right. Right, so people go oh, to yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. and you can get the links and go follow them. Go go see Please the do. documentary. Go see the documentary because it's that's, great. Thank you, man. I mean, that's the most probably the most important thing right now. But also, if you want to know more of the story, please um, buy Jane's incredible book, mm. uh, which Mark Commode calls not so much a coffee table book as a coffee table. <laughs> it is a gigantic thing. If you drop it on your foot, you will be an A&E for a week. Um, and it contains, it's a beautiful document. It's bejeweled, beautiful document. It's every single Scala program. 
from 1978 to 1993, packed in this extraordinary, you know, history. I mean, Jane has written the history of the Scarlet at the beginning of the book, and then the and then the programs take over. It's just it's the one I edited, the book I edited, which is again a huge editing job to do in about a month that I had to do it because we had to get it out quite oh, quickly. Man. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, but it's 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 just it's just finished its print run, but. Um, we've got in touch with a distribution company who are going to underwrite some new um, some new copies of it, so it should be out there again. It's 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 a work of art. It's absolutely stunning. So that will fill in the gaps um, for, for for those who aren't still getting their fix of the Scala enough from our documentary. Um, but yeah, there there is so much more of that story to tell. And as I say, I really hope um, that we get this oral history off the ground because that will fill even more. Polyfiller in the Scarlet story, and it, and it is and it is worth hearing and reading and seeing. Yes, and as a a TV series, I kind of feel it would work a little bit like the IT crowd. That's exactly funny enough. That's that's what Jane says. Actually, she thought of it as the kind of IT crowd. I mean, I it's it's a weird one. You know, we we had so many discussions about what it was going to be um, and how we're going to write it, and. I, I I think because we, we were slightly unsure of what it was going to be really, and there were so many influences coming in that, that it was a bit of a mishmash between a very, very surreal, um, hyper-real kind of young onesie kind of approach to, to, to a sitcom. Then you had the kind of more IT crowd kind of notes about it. Uh, and then you had the kind of office-y kind of, kind of style about it in a kind of, you know, verite doc, you know, sort of fly on the wall kind of doc. Um, I still don't know, but I still think it's got legs. Genuinely, oh, I think. I think, yeah. but also, also, um, <laughs> uh, there there is an argument for saying we should make a straight Scarlet story because the story in itself is is more insane than anything you could possibly dream of. You know, the actual real story. Like, Although, um, um, oh my god, uh, something famous. That, that almost famous. Yes, no. yes, yes, almost famous. Right, right, yeah. But I thought, but I thought, having said that as well, uh, we might be beset by lots and lots of lawsuits. <laughs> but you would start off at the beginning and be like, um, "This is maybe based on a true story." <laughs> like, right, you know. What so, I mean? <laughs> it so, may so happen, yeah, not have happened. Exactly. So funny enough, bringing it back to something like 24-hour party people might actually be the way forward. As in kind of, you know what, this 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 is this is a a mashup of myth and reality. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Throw in yeah, I, I, yeah. and just stuff in there. So you'd be like, that obviously never happened. So then people would just be like, was that true? Did that just hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, and there's a, there's a further argument, <laughs> further argument for saying that this film is Jane and I's only film that it should be one and done because because I don't think we'll ever <laughs> reach these kind of heady heights again, quite <laughs> honestly. Um, you know, I think I think people who make more than one film are kind of literal superheroes. I think they should wear capes. You know, I think I, I think that the, the stamina involved in making more than one film must be off the chain. Um, <laughs> you know, so 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 maybe this this should be it. This should be this should be our one hit wonder. Um, and then we should and we should go back to writing books and stuff like that. But um, but who knows? You know, it's um, it's going to be a very interesting year, I think, and I'm looking forward to whatever it brings. 
Oh, well, 2024 is definitely going to be huge for you, my friend. And if it's only one film, I'm glad it was this. But to be honest, I'd like to see other stuff. So, um, but hey, I'm, I'm going to be avidly watching. So, uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. This, is, this has been so great. It really has been one of the most enlightening and enjoyable um, podcasts we've done so far. It's been so good. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. All right. Well, hope the rest of your day goes swimmingly and um, all of these things happen because I, I'm just so looking forward to seeing it all and definitely checking out the Blu-ray. I'm hopefully my Blu-ray player, I will get it fixed before this goes <laughs> out. And so then I put out my views on the audio description and all of that aspect of it as well. They should they should have done a bag up job. It's I mean from what we can see that's it's the BFI have really have really come through for us. Yeah, I mean they've just done amazing amazing stuff for us every which way you know up to and including you know arranging this entire season throughout January around our movie. You know it's just just it's just mind blowing. I just I mean it's like it couldn't have gone better. I mean it's it's just like a bizarre dream come true. You know, to go, we we are absolutely the exemplar of the little engine that could, that no one wants to pick us up when we first when we were first touting this round, and then we got picked up at the end of the day by you know the highest film authority in the land. You know, mm. it's just like wow. You know, um, it's also going to be on Channel Four, so Film Four, um, in December. Right. We um yeah we 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 showed a test screening to the BFI, um. And they and they snapped it up on the basis of a single test screening, which is kind of miraculous. And then a week later, we, we dragged it along to Channel Four, and they snapped it up on the basis of that single test screening. Uh, I think I think it helped having Edgar Wright in the audience laughing like a hyena at it. I think that <laughs> that pushed it over the line. But there's there's. <laughs> There's there's a weird irony in the fact that Channel Four bought out the original Scala building, the original Scala cinema, uh, in 1981, which is why it had to move to King's Cross. Uh... Um, and also the fact that Film Four's sort of programming legacy, if you like, was very very much influenced by the Scala. And now we've kind of and now we've kind of come full circle. And oh, Film sure. Four Film Four snapped us up, and we're going to be showing on Film Four at the end of the year. So. Yeah, that that feels like um, magic in the best kind of poetic sense, you know. Oh, Matt, what a way to start and end the year! That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, That's incredible. yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tremendous, man! Man, that's great. And what's what's happening with you? What's 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 happening with you right now? What's in the future? Are you doing more podcasts, or what else are you doing? What else are you up to? Um, yeah, yeah, you know, it's just the podcast is just growing. So it's just, you know, doing more of this, having more conversations, which is great. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I, there's, I don't know, there, there, sometimes you talk to people and things look like they're happening, but then they don't. But yeah. there's things that might be going down. So we're just, yeah, I'm just pushing it. But it's just... Uh, yeah, just growing this, man. Just making it, you know. That's bigger. brilliant. What What are you most looking forward to this year? <sighs> I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's just a lot, really. I, I think once I get this where exactly where I want it to be, 
and I'm, I've started really pushing it out there, mm. that will be great. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah, then yeah. there's, um, you know, some big films I'm looking forward to checking out, film festivals, you know, which are always great. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's it's just that. And then just organizing a wedding. So there's a lot. <laughs> wow. <There's> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Whose wedding? Is this your wedding or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, this is your own wedding. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, congratulations! Thanks, bro. <laughs> when when is this? Um, it all depends on work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, work has been a bit elusive. Um, Don't take your laptop to the wedding, whatever you do. <laughs> so just just a second, let's start tapping away. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, just tap. tap. <laughs> But no, it's yeah, work's been a bit elusive. So as soon as I can lock down something, then uh yeah, we can start locking mm. dates in and everything. So it might if if I can get something sorted soon, it could be the end of this year. Otherwise, I think it might be the end of uh 2025. That's so brilliant. We will see. I wish you all the best for that. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Man, and um, yeah, and is there any other projects that are on the Yeah, back? I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I've, <laughs> I've um, yeah, I've, I'm supposed to be writing a memoir because ah. um, I had a very, very bizarre uh, childhood or upbringing um i was raised in i was raised in a very dirt poor area of chelsea called world's end um in southwest london mm. um below the poverty line uh by in a very boho setup um by a radical feminist and a warlock oh um, yeah so so that was um <laughs> there's not really been a kind of childhood memoir which has been from the position of someone who was raised essentially by practicing Crowleyite, you know, a practicing mm. world, which is a, a bit odd. Um, and it's about how, you know, I kind of survived that, I guess, is, is the only word I can use, really. Um, and, um, and how at the end of the book, <laughs> the memoir, uh, Jane, who I was making the film with, you know, during the filmmaking process, um, actually found my biological family. <laughs> Um, like, yeah, like three years ago. So it has, it has a, it has a happy ending, I think at this point. Um, so yeah, that's, that's all been a bit weird. Um, so yeah, I should really kind of, I need to get back to that because I've kept my agent waiting for about five years. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a procrastinator, but I procrastinated enough to just make a feature film. <laughs> of, like, doing this um, <laughs> so I've really in a spare moment i've i have really really got to get back to that somehow um and i'm glad i did this film um before i did it because it's like if i'd have been like a complete stranger out of nowhere with this memoir which a very wild and outlandish memoir people have gone you know they would have gone like who who the hell is this but like <laughs> the, like who is this nutter frankly but the fact that i've kind of done this they can oh it's just ali it's all right it's fine <laughs> he, he, he made that mad scala film it's all right <laughs> it's okay we're safe 
<laughs> so that, that was so that that again. That's kind of my reasoning, you know. Uh, um, so so yeah, so yeah. It's it's the moment. It's it's it's. Uh, hopefully, when I get another spare moment out of this, it's it's editing that oral history, and then finally getting back to that memoir. Yeah. Yeah. So the oral history, and then your history. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man. You can actually read a little bit about my my history. Um, in this month's edition of 14 times, you know, the magazine dedicated to the occult and woo woo and ghosts and, you know, the supernatural and things like that. Um, in which I, which I actually, Jane and I wrote about the kind of occult links of the Scarlet, if you like, or the yeah. area Kings cross and, and about half of it is taken up with my own, <laughs> my own bizarre story. Um, so that, 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 there's a taste of many for you. Ali's mad life. Um, and it's really, it's really sort of kick up the ass for me to actually sort of encourage me to go back and write the memoir again because it, it, it it's quite exposing for the first time to kind of write that story in print and mm. have it literally on the news shelves. Um, but it's but yeah, it's it's something I need to get back to big time. Oh man, well I cannot wait to check that out for sure. It's 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 a crazy story. I mean, I'm 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 half Iraqi, you know, I'm half half Kiwi and half Iraqi. Um, and Jane mischievously <laughs> seated my, my biological father, you know, this, this elderly Arab guy next to me, uh, during our Scarlet premiere at the Prince Charles. So he could, so there's a scene from Thundercrack in the film, which gave us our 18 certificate, you know, the likes of Edgar Wright, Ben Wheatley do toil quite hard to get an 18 certificate and they study the BBFC's guidelines and things to try and do this. We got an 18 certificate using one single second of Thundercrack. <laughs> and so Jane was like, yeah, let's sit Ali next to his biological father watching the Scala film and let's just see his reaction when a Thundercrack comes. <laughs> I'm like, can you imagine? I've already met him like two or three times. And I'm I <laughs> I'm just, I'm, you know, this is a porn film, right? And I'm just, I'm just sitting there next to him, and I can, and the moment's coming, the moment's coming, and I can feel Jane like almost tittering in the dark behind me, and I'm just like squirming in my seat, like, oh man, <laughs> and this guy next to me is just like, to his credit, he's like, okay, <laughs> my my biological son is just. Uh, just showing me this. I've only known him like you know a year, but uh... <laughs> yeah, that was that was quite a moment. Thanks, Jay. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, that that that'll go in the memoir, won't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> oh boy <laughs> yeah i mean seriously like to, to see something like that you know with your with with your actual you know if you if you if you're you know sort of grown up as a kid you know when you'd see things like that on television when your parents were in the room you'd be you'd be like leaving the room and blushing yeah. but to li literally sort of sit there in the room with your actual biological father who you've only known for like five minutes and sort of seeing that is that's 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 a yeah <laughs> that was a memorable day. <laughs>
I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. Ali, this is this has been great, man. This has been great. <laughs> it has. It's been lovely. Thank you so much for this. And no worries at all. I hope the rest of your day is just as fun. Thank you. And you. <laughs> all right, man. Thanks a lot. You take no it. Problem. You too. And 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 congratulations again. And have a lovely day on your wedding. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. All right. Hopefully we'll see you again soon. Take Bye. care. Bye. Bye. So there we go, people. How listen, when I say it's a great conversation, I'm not ever gonna lie to you people how great was ali and chain right oh my days now definitely go follow right go follow them because you want to know when this the new project drops because it just sounds fascinating right a, a further exploration of what the scala was come on now it's going to be great. Go check out Jane's book as well, right? But people, mark it down. So Monday, the 22nd of January is when Scala will be available on Blu-ray, also the BFI player. So if you've got a subscription to that, you'll be able to watch it there, people. You know what I mean? Scala is still in the cinema. So if you want it on the big screen, you can go check it out there. And until the end of the month, right, the BFI is running a season of Scala's greatest hits called Scala, Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll Cinema. You know what I mean? It's playing at the South Bank, BFI South Bank. So, yeah, some of the titles will be on the BFI player as well. So you can go there to check it out, right? So on the website, we're going to have links, right, to be able to follow everyone, to be able to buy Jane's book, to be able to book tickets, all that jazz. So make sure you go there and go see the doc, man. It's It was great. It was great, right? So there we go. Thanks to Jane. Thanks to Ali. People, thank you for checking this out. Go subscribe to the YouTube. Show some love. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Echo Chamber. Mm -hmm.